open up the Word of God for you. Um, I believe that it is the Spirit of God who reveals truth to us. And so this morning I pray that through this incredible Bible story we're going to look at and some of the ramifications, you'll not just learn stuff, but you'll learn stuff. You know what I mean? That it'll really, uh, it'll become a part of you. And one of the reasons we're doing this is because uh, we are looking to be activated for God's kingdom's sake. Um, God's purpose was not just so that you would go to heaven. Amen? I mean, it's not bad news that you're going to heaven. I mean, I, I don't know about you, but I'd rather go to heaven than hell. Amen? Okay, hang with me. I may just get more responses to keep me moving forward this morning. Um, but God also desires that his kingdom would come, his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven, and he chose you for that purpose. In other words, you're here for that reason that God's kingdom would be manifest all around you. And I would contend that there are many people who, rather than being activated for God's kingdom's sake, either through sin, weariness and well-doing, um, sickness, uh, tragedy of life, they are deactivated in their faith. They are just existing day to day. They're just getting by. We're going to look at uh, one such example today and how God moved no matter what, because that's what God does. And how as a result, it, it, it's just a powerful story of redemption and truth and God's life being poured out. Um, Paul says in Romans that he is not ashamed of the gospel uh, because, why? It's the power of God. The good news is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. And how is that message of power going to get to the people so that they can be saved? He uses us. His his weapon of choice, so to speak, is you and me filled with the power of the Spirit being fully activated for his kingdom. Paul tells Timothy, for this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you. And though Paul is talking to Timothy, I believe he's also referring to every single one of us. That we all have a gift. That we need to what? Fan into flame. In, which means what? The reverse. If you don't use it, it just becomes an ember in you. In other words, it's there, but there's our part of seeing it fanned into the full flame of God so that he can, he can use it. A part of activation is fanning into flame. Jesus says to us that we're the light of the world. Now, you can either take that light, put it under a basket, hide it from the world, deactivate the light that God has put in you, or you can set it on a mountaintop. Let it give light to the world around you. That's what God's call is on our lives. And so through this series, we are looking at how God wants to activate us. And one of the ways that he wants to activate us is, is through the relationships we have with one another in order to spur one another on. In other words, <clears throat> um, Jack's, when Jack gets activated and Jack is in my life and Jack is 
talking to me, responding to me, doing what Jack is supposed to do in his proper relationship with me, it spurs me on to love and good deeds. His activation will activate me, right? Then I, um, I, I'm in a relationship with Chris. Chris is in a relationship with Wendy. Wendy's in a relationship with Jenny. As we get activated with each other, in God's kingdom's sake, it will spur us on to love and good deeds, and we will be engaged. Same thing is true. The more I deactivate myself, the more effect it has on the body of Christ. The more, the more it affects. Please, here's one of the things I want you to say. This, this is not just about you. You say, I, I just don't want to do this. I don't want to do that. I don't want to go here. I don't want to go there. I don't want to be in relationship with people. Okay, I, I understand that there are some of us who are more introverted than extroverted, but I want, to, I want to encourage you to say this. Your deactivation affects all of us. And I'm not just saying that selfishly. I'm just saying if we want to be engaged as a body, then we all have to be engaged. We are we are a part of a consumer culture, which says, this is all about you. If you want to be happy, take this, do this, don't do this, buy this, spend this, consume it, spit it out, move on your way. But the body of Christ does not work like that. It's opposite of that. It is an integral organism, a functioning thing together. If we don't, if we don't activate one another, the church as a whole will be deactivated. And I'm not just talking about our church. I'm talking about, do you wonder why Christianity in America is on the decline? One of the things I would say is because we've become an unrelational people. We're not in relationship with anybody. You know, that government, we can be in the same room five of us on five different phones at the same time, never talking to one another, never being with one another, we can become so isolated in, even in the middle of others. Our faith is a reproducing relational faith. Without it, it won't happen. I think God will find a way to, to keep things going, a, a remnant of truth, but it will not be what God calls us to be. Paul says this to Timothy, and the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses and trust to reliable men who will also be qualified to teach others. What is he saying? Look, you heard it from me. You've got it. You pass it on. They pass it on. It's, it's God's plan. This relational thing of, of mentoring one another, being with one another. Moses chose capable men in order to pass on his responsibilities so that they could, in turn, multiply Moses, so to speak, in the nation of Israel. Jesus even says to his disciples, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, and now, basically, I'm giving it to you. Now, go and make disciples. Well, he, what is he, here's what I did with you. Now, you do this with others. Pass it on. Anderson and Reese, in their book on spiritual mentoring, say this. Our Christian faith is an imitative faith. It always has been, beginning with Jesus' earliest words to the men and women who would become his apprentices of faith. 
Christianity has understood itself to be a faith taught by one to another. The life of Jesus must be seen and held as the unique model of worthy of imitation for Christians. We have an imitative faith. Christianity in its basic nature is, we've said it tons here, relational. Relationship with God, relationship with one another, relationship with the world. We just had um, a week or so ago a women's retreat. Why? Why would we have a women's retreat? I mean, I, I think these 40 women probably had something better to do. Okay, maybe half of them had something better to do. The other half had nothing better to do, and this seemed like a good option. Why? Because we need to be in relationship with one another. Paul even talks about older women teaching younger women. Why? Because our faith is a relational faith. And if we don't know each other, then how can we, how can we engage in this process? How can we be a part of that? cultural anthropologists tell us that almost every society has elders of some kind. They're generally older, more experienced members of the group to whom the younger look for identity. The word mentor, by the way, um, is not used in the Bible. Uh, it's a Greek mythological term. Uh, Ulysses, before he went sailing, hired a guy named got any guess? Mentor. To, 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 to teach his son Telemachus while he was gone. Well, he was gone a little further, longer than he thought, but Telemachus was to teach, um, I mean, mentor was to teach Telemachus just not information, but the things of the world, to teach him how to be a man since Ulysses was going off to fight a war. And from that, we get the term mentor, which, which means to uh, advise, to, to train, to teach, to bring up. Really, in our in our wording, we use the term disciple, discipling. We want to teach someone what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And we do it not from afar, throwing words. Hello? I mean, this is not, this is only one part of discipling. Me teaching, me sharing, us worshiping. Really, the heart of discipling is being in relationship with one another. Now, some of you may think, well, yeah, I know. Here we go. He's going to roll out this new thing on, um, the, you know, the 15 weeks of discipling. What do you have to learn? Listen, here's the thing I want you to see from the story I'm going to show you this morning. It's just living together. It's just being together. It's, there is an impartation of information, but... Let me just say this. I would look around this room. I say 99% of you are got more information than you know what to do with. Your problem is not an information problem. My problem is not an information problem. As my dad used to say, I am educated well beyond my intelligence. It's not, it's not an information issue. It's a how do I put it? I gotta put it into practice. And how do I put it into practice? Look for relationships. Look for relationships. Okay, I'm going to move quickly because this is such a great story. Look, there are numerous examples in the Bible of this mentoring, discipling, whatever term you want to use. David 
What, what was David's most famous feat? Slaying of Goliath. Do you know when you look at David and what happens, and then you look at the accounts of the men who followed him, you know what they were? They're giant killers. They were warriors. They eventually become musicians. Why? Because that's who David was. David raised up men, warriors, like himself. Uh, it, he gathered them to himself. You had Elijah and Elisha. Elijah starts a school of prophets. Elisha attaches himself to it. He becomes a, even doubles the miracles of Elijah, greater anointing. Jesus and his followers, both men and women, though we talk about the disciples as being men um, because of the cultural aspect of it, but Jesus also had women disciples that were following him, disciples in a different way, but followers of his. Paul and Timothy. Paul says, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. He also says, whatever you've learned or received or heard or seen in me. That's a pretty good list, by the way. You've learned, received, heard, seen. Put it into practice. The only way you do that is through relationship. And I, and I want to say to you that this isn't just merely a male-oriented format. Uh, though some of you may say, well, you know, you're talking about David Smith, Jesus' followers. One of the greatest examples in the Bible to me of this um, mentoring that goes beyond anything we can even imagine is in the book of Ruth. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Joshua, Judges, Ruth. Seventh book of the Bible, Ruth. Written probably during the time of Saul or the early reign of David. We're not, we're not sure. But it's a part of the period that's known as the Judges. Uh, the Judges, there was no king yet. That's a time when everybody was doing what was right in their own eyes. You remember that scripture passage? But it's, it's, it's a time between when Joshua ruled over the people and Saul eventually becomes king. It's a, it's a period of hundreds of years in the nation's history. And there's this story that takes place, and it's really the story of Ruth and her mother-in-law, Naomi. And let me just walk you through the story and then give you some points at the end. So the narrative is going to take a minute. And then at the end, I want to pull it together with three points that talk about relationship, talk about mentoring, talk about discipling, whatever word you want to, you want to use. So here goes the story, which probably you know pretty well, at least parts of it, but maybe I can fill in some gaps that are really meaningful. And by the way, there are a lot of levels of this great little book, a lot of tears that you can look at, but I think I'll give you enough that you can dig into it a little bit and even find some other stuff. We're looking at it from a specific angle, the relationship of Naomi and Ruth this morning. Naomi and her husband, Elimelech, they're from the town of Bethlehem. Bethlehem, you know, means city of bread, village of bread, and there's a famine that takes place in that area, and so they leave and they leave with their two sons, and they go to the land of Moab, a neighboring country that's not a part of the nation. Moabites were looked down upon. They didn't like them, so they must have been really desperate to leave here and to go to some place to get food. Well, they set up a life for themselves, and the two boys get grown up, and they marry 
and they happened to marry a, a couple of Moabite women uh, because that's where they were living at the time. They were living in the land of Moab, and so that's who, that's who they married. And uh, the boys, they, they married, uh, I'm going to missay this because it's so, <laughs> they marry Orpah. I keep wanting to say Oprah, but it's not. It's Orpah and Ruth. And then over a period of time, the two sons actually die. So Elimelech dies, the two sons die. So now we've just got Naomi and her two daughter-in-laws. Well, word gets back to Naomi that things are back, food is back to normal back in Bethlehem. So she's really got nothing here anymore. Her, her sons are dead. There's no grandkids. Um, her husband is dead. Her family, what's left of it, even though they had to sell their land and move from Bethlehem to, to Moab in order to survive, what's left of her extended family is still back in Bethlehem. So she leaves to go back, and her daughter-in-laws follow her for a period. And in Ruth 1, verses 18 through 13, Naomi says to her two daughter-in-laws, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show kindness to you as you have shown to your dead and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them, and they wept aloud and said to her, We will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Now let me just pause here for a second and say, I know this sounds really weird um, when you read this. But in this culture, the thought was, a husband dies, I'll marry his brother. It was all about the family. It was all about the family. It was all about land. Uh, who owns land, because in this culture, it's all about family and property. And so she says to him, hey, even if I could have any more children, are you going to wait around long enough for these sons? It's a creepy kind of thought in our mindset, I know. But it's the culture of, she's saying, I, there are no more sons. There are going to be no more sons for you to marry. You're going to have a better shot at a husband if you go back to your land without me hanging around. You're still young, beautiful women. Go back to your people. It, it's really, it's really a, a, a statement of mercy, not of judgment. Like get, she wasn't trying to get rid of them. Um, she, she cares for these daughter-in-laws, but she knows there's no hope where we're headed. She goes on and says, Return home, my daughters. I'm too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It's more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has gone out against me. Naomi at this point feels like she is all alone and that the Lord has abandoned her. Her husband is dead. Her, her sons are dead. And though you may think all this statement's a little dramatic, she is doing it for, for the sake of her daughter-in-laws. She has no line, no lineage. She felt worthless and a nobody because she has no land. <clears throat> By the way, I, I could stop here just for a second. She feels worthless because everything her culture says is of worth. She has none of it. 
land, lineage, a husband, extended family. She's got none of that. So she feels worthless. I could extend this to us today. Our culture puts on us things that say you are worth something. And when we don't feel like we have those things, we feel worthless. And God is, is wanting, this story is about saying to Naomi, not only you don't know what value is because you're looking at the wrong place. You're looking at the wrong thing. Naomi tells the girls to go back. They all have a good cry, you know, before, before parting. Um, <clears throat> then, verse 14 through 18, let's just read it and, and speak about it a little bit. At this they wept again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. You know, um, Naomi is saying to her, hey, go back to your people, to your gods, to your relationships. And Ruth says, no, I'm going with you. Your God, she's transformed. She's a Moabite. She's not Jewish. Do, you, do y'all get this? She's not Jewish. She's a foreigner. And she's saying, look, I'm going with you. Your God's going to be my God. Your people are going to be my people. Where you die and get buried, that's where I'm going to die and get buried. I'm swearing it before Yahweh. I mean, she uses the covenantal, she makes a covenantal promise to Naomi. I mean, she's going against all hope. You know, immigration is a hard thing. I know there are a lot of things going on with immigration right now, but it, in, in the thought of immigration, you're leaving behind everything that you know, everything that's comfortable, everything that you have, and you're setting up. Why? Because there's some hope that is greater in doing this. Very few people immigrate from a hopeful to a less hopeful status. That's generally not the nature of things, unless they're Christians that are looking for mission work. I mean, really, the only way is if God calls us to go and say, we are hope, and we're going to go to hopeless, and we're going to demonstrate hope. But otherwise, people are trying to move up the hope chain. Ruth really doesn't have such hope. She's leaving everything behind. She her odds of ever getting married in the nation of Israel, in the Jewish people, because she's a Moabitess, um, she's a Moabite woman, is like none. Zero. Well, a little better than that, as we'll see. R Ruth returns with Naomi, and <clears throat> she goes out into the fields to do what's called gleaning. Now, this is a uniquely Jewish practice, this gleaning thing. Um, if you look back in Leviticus and Numbers, 
they were commanded when they um, harvested the land, they weren't to, to be so picky that they picked up every single piece. They were to leave a little bit on purpose so that the poor could come in and get some, some grain. It was a uniquely Jewish thing. Other nations didn't do this. This is a command from God, leave a little grain in the field. When the, when the poor need it, they'll come and get it. Where, where did, Ruth goes out with Naomi to glean in the fields. Where does Ruth learn how to glean in the fields? From Naomi, because, I mean, it makes sense, right? It's uniquely Jewish and she ain't Jewish. So she's got to learn all of these things that she's learning from Naomi. And because she's learning them and she's doing it, as she's cleaning the field, the guy who owns the field looks over and sees Ruth. And he asks his workers, hey, 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 who's that? And they say to him, that's, that's Naomi's daughter-in-law, Ruth. And now Boaz and Ruth are related. He's like a second cousin twice removed or something, but they're related in, in the whole family picture. And so, <coughs> excuse me, I'm sure that sounded great over to the microphone. So, because she's family and because of something else that attracts him to her, he says to his workers, hey, leave a little extra for Ruth and Naomi. And he tells Ruth and Naomi, hey, only come to my field and be here when my servant girls are here. Why would he even say such a thing? Protection, that's exactly right. For Ruth, it's a dangerous proposition to be doing what she's doing. I mean, she's, you know, there were, there were like men, and then there were um, slaves, and then there were women, and then there were women from other countries, and then run on the same level are pets and animals and livestock. So you're, she's way down, unprotected. But he's going he's gonna to help her and protect her. And there's this, there's this unique aspect of this whole story that I'm just going to brush over, but it's a, great, it's a great truth. And it has to do with known, what's known as the kinsman redeemer. And this is what we see in the book of Ruth is the story of the kinsman redeemer. So let's say I was a part of the nation of Israel. I come in with Moses and Joshua and every, every family is assigned some land. Every tribe is given some land, and then every tribe is broken up, and every family is given some land. That land is part of me, my heritage. It, there's a spiritual aspect to this, too, because God promised them land. He promised them a nation, and when they got it, they received it. Now, Naomi has had to sell hers, but there's this um, biblical and legal aspect that says... Look, if you want the land back, the one who has the right of first refusal on the buying of that land back is someone who's related to you. So let's say that um, I have to sell this land. And my brother, Brian, he at some point can come to the people who own the land and say, I want to buy this land back because I'm a kinsman and I want to redeem the land back. Now, this is where the story gets a little crazy, but again, hang with the cultural aspect. 
when I buy the land, I buy not just the land, but because the land is attached to my family, I have to take responsibility for all the family. Are you with me? So this will seem a little weird, but let's say that, that, um, <clears throat> that I pass away and I have some land and my brother wants to buy it back, then he also gets to have to take my wife with him. Are you following me? So when he buys the land back, he gets not just the land, he gets who is married to me. And he gets my children. And now if he and my former wife have children, they're not only getting my land, they get inheritance to his land as well. It's a complicated... Are you staying with me? I know it sounds strange in our mindset, in our culture, but that's how important land and family were. So, Boaz falls in love with Ruth, and he proposes to her. And it's a great story how, I'm not going to go through it, but again, it's Naomi teaching Ruth what is the culture of how to let him know you're interested, he's interested in the whole proposal thing. So, he, he does. But here's the complicating factor. The complicating factor is that the closest, there's kind of a line of succession of kinsmen redeemers. So like Boaz was not the closest living relative to Naomi at the time, because this is all about Naomi's land. So he wants to get the land, but he really wants Ruth. But to get Ruth, he's got to take, he's got to buy the land back. Are you, are you staying with me? Are you stay with me? If you're not, you better say yes, because if not, I'm backing up, and we're going after it again. So he has to go to the city gate and declare his intention to say, hey, I want to buy this land, but hey, uh, Joe, you're, you're, you're a little closer, and do you want, you got right of first refusal, do you want it? He goes, hey, you know what? I think I do want this land. And then Boaz says, well, oh, by the way, if you take the land, then you've also got to take Naomi and the Moabite woman, Ruth. Now, he's thinking, Naomi, not much of a problem. She's old. She probably won't be around long. You know, the mother-in-law can come with the land. I can handle that. But now I got this woman that I'm going to have to take on as my wife, and if she has children, then I'm going to... My, my legacy is at stake. And he says to Boaz, no, I'll step aside. You take her. You take the land. Go ahead. I'll step, step out of the way, which is what Boaz wants all along, so that he can get the land and marry Ruth. So, Boaz's plan works. <laughs> this is funny. They exchange sandals as a sign. Here's your, hey, take a sandal, you know. <laughs> it's like signing a contract, and it's announced. It's a done deal. And in Ruth 4, I'm skipping ahead, then the elders and all those at the gate said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you have standing in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. Through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. That's a whole nother sordid story if you want to read it. So you, it's not, it's a weird blessing, by the way. 
here's a weird story. Hey, you be like this, and the, the daughter-in-law is left with her father-in-law. So Boaz took Ruth. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. Then he went to her, and the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. The women said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a kinsman redeemer. That's Boaz. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you and is better... Boy, this is an incredible statement. And who is better to you than seven sons has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child, laid him in her lap, and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, who was the father of David, who Jesus eventually comes from. Ruth gets woven into the line of the Messiah unbelievable story incredible story and to me I want to I, I want to talk about this there's the whole aspect of the kinsman redeemer um, Boaz is a type of Jesus by the way who is a kinsman redeemer and redeems us um, there's that whole truth woven in but the that's really the story but what I want to look at in just a couple of minutes is to give you some points about mentoring this relationship between Naomi and Ruth, because I think and there's a lot of ways we could talk about mentoring, but this is going to be just a little bit different. Um, so just hang with me. And here's the first point. God establishes relationships. God establishes relationships. Here's what I want to say about this. By establishes relationships, I mean, he makes relationships happen. But when I say establishes relationships, God has chosen relationships as the means by which he's going to operate. He establishes relationship. It's not good for man to be alone. I'm going to make him a helpmate. I, I, I'm going to do, if you look at the Bible from first to last, it's about relationships. God is not looking for a person after his name. He's looking for a people after his name. It's all about we're the body of Christ. I could go on and on and on about this. It is important, and it, and, and it leads to Ruth saying, May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. People, we don't know this kind of relationship anymore. We don't even know it in marriage, do we? Till death or something better comes along. I give you my vow. I mean, we don't have that kind of relational connection anymore. <clears throat> How is the gospel going to go out? A lot of different tiers to this. You know, the world's going to know that we're his disciples by the love we have for one another. Okay, well, that's not working so good. And we have to be in relationship with people in order to show them, share with them, love them into receiving the gospel, which is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes, and that way we're not ashamed of it. 
I, I went to a funeral a number of years back. I don't know, 5, 10, I can't remember. And a lady got up at the funeral and said, when I was a baby, this lady and her husband befriended my family, which lived next door. And one day, they invited my parents to come to church with them. And she said, my parents didn't come to church with them because they wanted to go to church. They went to church with them because of the sacrificial love of this couple. And so while I was a baby, my parents carried me to my first church service, and they became followers of Jesus Christ as a result of this lady and her husband showing sacrificial love to us. You know, we could, we could probably go around this room and talk about how we came to faith either through a friend or a family member who loved us and pointed us in that direction or directly shared with us. Ruth was changed because of Naomi's love for her. Naomi was changed because of Ruth's love for her. Boaz gets drawn into this. And Ruth and Naomi are changed because of Boaz's sacrificial love. Hey, in effect, we're all changed because of their sacrificial love. If you think about it, because we stand as a result of the line of Jesus. Here's the thing. Love, she says, I will go. Where you go, I will go. There's the love there. There's, there's time. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stay with you. How long? Uh, the whole time. I'm with you all the time. And I'm going to be committed, so committed that I'm with you till death. And this love plus time plus commitment equals change in people's lives. Love plus time plus commitment equals change. If we had to be honest, we don't love people all that well. We more tolerate them. Okay, maybe I'm just talking about me. But uh, we don't love people all that well. And we don't. time has become our most precious commodity so that we don't really spend time with other people all that much. We live in our silos. As I've said before, we live in the back cave. You know how he just kind of, you know, just goes sailing out, the cave door opens, shuts down. He goes out and does his thing, saves the world. Boom, the cave opens, boom, he goes back in, nobody even knows he's there. That's the way we live. Garage door up, fly out, go to work, back in. I'll, I'll leave when I open the back cave tomorrow. Many of us, we don't even know our neighbors' names. You know, unless we got their mail by accident. That's true, people. Tim, he knows all my neighbor's name because he delivers my mail. So, Tim, I got some questions to ask you later about what their name is. God establishes relationships. Here's my question. Where in your life are you in relationship with people who are different than you? I'm not looking for the like you. I'm looking for the different than you. Where in your life? Have you opened up the door to let people who are different than you so that you can spend time with them, show them love, and commit to them so that 
we can see change happen in our world. Okay, I'm going to go through the next two points a little quicker. God works through the difficult and the mundane. Through the difficult and the mundane. We live in a world filled with hopelessness. If you look at the story, Naomi is hopeless. She even changes her name to Mara or something like that, which means bitter. Uh, uh, just uh, she, she, she is so broken when she's going back that she feels hopeless. Um, Woody Allen once gave a, a, a speech to graduates, and he says this, man faces a crossroads. One path leads to despair and utter hopelessness, the other to total extinction. Let us pray we have the wisdom to choose correctly. That's the hopeless scenario. I know, you know, he's a sarcastic, problematic man. But nonetheless, nonetheless, that's the way we view life. Either hopeless or extinct. I got no joy. The best I can hope for is die. Or I'm going to die. So I'm gonna, I mean, the book of Ruth is, you know what's missing from the book of Ruth? Miracles. I mean, in our way of saying miracles. I mean, the books that come before her, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, maybe not so much, Numbers, maybe a little bit. But Joshua and John, full of the miraculous. Ruth is a book of the mundane, of the difficult. And you know what we see? God at work in the difficult and the mundane. Many of us think, oh, you know what? God has got to break through in a miraculous way in my life. I'm empty, and I need to see fire from heaven. I need to see this. I need to see that. It could happen. It could also happen that it, you just living in your life in relationship with others like you're supposed to, you'll see the breakthrough of God. Because... Otherwise, there are times we go hunting for something miraculous when God is saying, <clears throat> there's this incredible scene in Ruth where Naomi is saying to her family, don't call me Naomi anymore. Call me broken or bitter or despaired or whatever. I got nothing. I got nothing anymore. And what she doesn't know is that the greatest treasure more valuable than seven sons is standing right next to her in the person of Ruth. She doesn't even know it. She doesn't recognize it because hopelessness has overwhelmed her. And yet, she's going to mentor. The hopeless one is going to mentor the treasured one so that God's purpose will be accomplished. You may be saying to yourself, I, I got nothing to give. Oh, yes, you do. Yes, you do. You may think you've got nothing, but... You've lived life. You've experienced, you know things that the, the people, those in relationship with you need to know. Is it going to be easy? Is it going to be fire from heaven kind of thing? No, it could just be difficult. Welcome to life. It could be mundane. Just living my life. How am I going to see this miracle? Well, we're going to go pick up some wheat. We're going to get some barley out the field. We're just going to do a little work together. Just come on and hang out with me. And let's just go do the mundane. Let's go rake some leaves. Let's go mow grass. Let's do some dishes. Let's live life. And in it, 
You know, here's one of the miracles for me. I don't, I'm not sure disciple-making is this program of I got to go to 15 weeks and learn this grid of information. I think disciple-making is, hey, I'm going to live my life, and I'm going to live it to the glory of Jesus. Just come on. And along the way, you're going to learn how to live life. I think it's why Paul can say, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. By the way, when Jesus was born, how many thrones were in Israel at the time? I don't know. Not many. How many mangers were in Israel? A ton. And yet, where did God choose to place Jesus? In a manger. In the common, in the ordinary, in the difficult, in the mundane. We miss things because we are looking for something when God's way is right in front of us. I'm running out of time, but there's this great story in The Hobbit, uh, Lord of the Rings, first volume, where uh, these hobbits are going on a mission, and they're supposed to be finding this guy who's supposed to be somebody special um, by the name of Strider, who's also known as Aragorn. So if, I'm just talking in tongues to some of you, I know, because you never read the books, didn't see the movies. But they're in a bar, and they're just drinking, because that's what hobbits do. Don't take this as a way of life thing. But they're, they're in there, and they're, they start talking to this guy, and they eventually get to the place where it's revealed this is the guy they're looking for, but they're not looking for what he looks like. And so they miss him at first. Not only is he a, a ranger, a woodsman, but he's a king in disguise. You know, really, I, I, could, I could have preached this one point all morning because I think this is critical. We're looking for God in places where God is saying, I'm right here. I'm in the difficult. I'm in the mundane. Don't run away from this. Embrace it. And when you do, it's going to be miraculous. Finally, God, God has given us the message and the mission. God has given us the message and the mission. I, I'm going to skip this poem that I had put. Uh, it's a famous poem called Invictus where he ends up with, I'm the master of my own fate. I'm the captain kind of thing. It's a great story, but the point in it is this. He thinks he can save himself. I mean, it's a great poem. It's very stirring, and uh, it's written in great circumstances, but the truth is this. You can't save yourself. You can't save yourself. So here's, here's what I want to flip it just for a, a second and, and lead you to this point about mentoring. Naomi says this, Praise be to the Lord who this day has not left, uh, the, her friends say this to Naomi, praise be the Lord who this day has not left you without a kinsman and redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you and is better than you than seven sons, he will give him birth. It is unbelievable that we have a Moabite woman who is now worth more than seven sons. Lowest on the rung. Do you know where the Moabites come from? Anyone? It comes from an incestual relationship between Lot and his daughters. Remember after Sodom and Gomorrah, 
They had to flee. So now everybody they knew is dead. Mom's turned to salt. Remember the story? So they're hiding in a cave. Lot and his two daughters. And the two daughters say, we're, guy, we, we're in big trouble here. Everybody we know is dead. Their big plan is, let's get dad drunk, sleep with him, we'll have a son, and then we'll at least have something to move forward. The Bible is full of... Some of you need to go home. I'm sorry if your children are too young for this. Maybe you know, go home and explain some things. But that's where the Moabites are descendants of Lot and his oldest daughter. Jewish people, they despise them because of this incestuous relationship thing. They're outcasts. What would make, what would make a guy like Boaz look at a Moabite woman and think, hey, I've got a heart for her. We'll go with that, TV. That's one option. That's one option. <laughs> Do you know, you know the other option? The other option, besides her being fine, Boaz, his father was named Salmon. Salmon was, named, was married to a woman named Rahab, the same Rahab who was the harlot in Jericho, who gets adopted into the nation of Israel. So Boaz's mom was an outcast. Because he now had been accepted, he can see Ruth from a different perspective. What, what does that have to do with what does that have to do with us? Hey, Christ has redeemed us. We were outcasts. And he's brought us in. He's redeemed us from the curse. So what is our response to be? At one time, we thought of Christ merely from a human point of view. How differently we know him now. This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone. The new life has come. Hey, praise God, we're new, right? We've been adopted. We're like Rahab the harlot. We are on the outs. But God through his generosity, broke that curse in our life. He brought us in, and now what is he going to do? He says all of this is a gift from God who brought us back to himself through Christ, and God has given us this task of reconciling people to him. For God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against us, and he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. So we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead to people, come back to God. The story of Ruth is our story. We were outcasts. We were, we were long from him, but, but he's brought us back. He's redeemed us. And yet now he says, go and tell. How? through relationship, through the difficult, through the mundane. Be ambassadors. Live life demonstrating to the world the glory of God, the gift that he's placed within each one of us. See, you, you and I, when I start talking about this mentoring thing, if you're like me, you're like, oh, my lens, I don't know. That means I'm going to have to get somebody and take care. Uh, you know, we start moaning and groaning about discipling and disciple making and why because we don't we lose sight of what God has done for us 
the fact that he's brought us, he's freed us. It's a gift. It's a glory. Now go and share with the world this glory. Be his ambassadors. Get in people's lives. Be in relationship with them. And when you do, you're going to be activated for his kingdom's sake. Mentoring and showing the world the greatness and glory of God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. We bless you. We thank you for the story of Ruth and the riches of this incredible story. That Christ, you redeemed us. You bought us back. You restored us. And Lord, I pray that we will now be fruitful. We will now break out of ourselves. We'll now not be... We'll see ourselves as who you see in us. And that even in our brokenness, even in our hurt, even in our wounding, even in our despair, that God, you still use us. If we'll just be willing to take the next step and the one after that and the one after that. So Lord, I pray for us to be a disciple-making people, loving you, loving people, blessed to be. Lord, I pray right now as we come to a time of giving where we get to give back to you a portion of what you've given to us, that God, you'll, you'll use this as a testimony of your glory and your greatness and your goodness. And this will be us saying, God, this little bit, it represents all of me, even my brokenness. Even my despair, God, I want to be used for your kingdom's sake. I want to fan into flame the gift you place within me. I want, to, I want to get over myself. I want to get over my hurts. I want to get over my wounding. I want to get over my past. I want to get over my despair. I want to walk in your might and in your power. So God, in my brokenness, in my despair, in my even hopelessness, God, use me to love and to be an ambassador for you, saying to people, come back to God. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. We're going to worship God through the giving of an offering.